This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi there, listener. You're hearing the archive presentation in six parts of our classic episode covering the work, life, and strange experiences of famed sci-fi author Philip K. Dick. This episode also covers associated topics like Christian Gnosticism, physicalist and dualist views of consciousness, the thousands of pages of philosophical ramblings that Dick wrote in the last years of his life, and how in many ways, thanks to his visionary fiction, we are all living in the reality that PKD made. We're dropping one part into our feed for each of the next six weeks. If you'd prefer to hear all of this in one big MP3, it's available as episode 18 in the show feed. But we know that some of you out there prefer our modern, digestible chunks approach to show delivery digestible chunks approach to show delivery over our original huge topics and multi-hour marathons approach, so this is an opportunity to check out some of the older stuff in short doses while we work up brand new stuff. You'll start hearing those new episodes in January of 2024, and we hope in the meantime these will tide you over. You can reach us at theparanoidstrain.com, email theparanoidstrain at gmail.com, Join our friendly group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash the paranoid strain. And if you're so inclined, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash the paranoid strain. And now, please relax as our pink light penetrates your brain. Don't worry, that analogy will make sense after you listen. Jesuit out. has a gospel? I thought he was a bad guy who betrayed Jesus to the Romans. Yeah, that's the case in the Bible, but remember, the Gnostics didn't accept the gospels we know. They had many other versions of these stories, and in at least one of them, Judas was the hero. Here again, we turn to the ridiculously interesting Bible scholar Bart Ehrman to explain. We do know of about 40 gospels that are not in the New Testament. We know of about 40 Gospels, including now the Gospel of Judas, and the Gospel of Judas is one of the earliest of these 40. So it's a very old Gospel, not as old as the New Testament Gospels, but nonetheless very old. And even more significant, it's an ancient Gnostic Gospel. 
Some people have within them a spark of the divine, and the Gnostic religion is designed to set them free. Some of us are here, even though this isn't our home. And so divine sparks have been entrapped here in this disastrous creation. And the way to escape this entrapment is by acquiring the secret knowledge of who they really are. The divine sparks need to know who they are. This knowledge is not available to everybody. It's esoteric knowledge, it's secret knowledge, it's mysterious knowledge, and it's only for insiders. Where does this knowledge come from? In fact, you can't acquire this knowledge by looking around the world and figuring it out, because this world is a disaster. And the knowledge is not embedded in this world. The knowledge has to come to you from the divine realm. You need a redeemer from the divine realm to come down to give you the secret knowledge that you need, the gnosis that can set you free from the entrapment to your body. You need to escape your body, and that happens when you acquire the secret knowledge. And so that's what the Gnostic systems were all about. Jesus is the one who comes down from heaven to reveal the truth that can make you free. This gospel is not going to emphasize the death and resurrection of Jesus as the way to salvation. It's going to emphasize the importance of this, of this secret revelation. Jesus tells Judas that he will be a ruler over all the other disciples and that, in fact, he will surpass all the disciples for an interesting reason. One of the key verses in this entire gospel, Jesus tells Judas, you will surpass them all, for you will sacrifice the man that bears me. Jesus, while he's here giving his revelation, is also in a human body. But that human body has to be shed so that he can return to the Pleroma. Just as those who are trapped spirits here need to shed their body to return to the Pleroma. And how is it going to happen that Jesus will return to the Pleroma? He has to shed his body, which means his body has to die. Judas turns him over so that his body will be crucified so he can escape and return to his heavenly home. So you will surpass them all for you will sacrifice the man that bears me. This gospel does not end with Jesus being crucified. Because for this gospel, that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter that Jesus died on the cross because he didn't die on the cross for the sins of the world. He wasn't raised bodily from the dead because the whole point is to escape the body. The resurrection of the body is offensive to this author. The idea of the resurrection of the body is the idea that you're going to live eternally in your body. But for this author, the body's the problem. You need to escape your body. And so Jesus, too, escapes his body. And so his body doesn't get raised from the dead. He returns to his pleroma, having given the revelation that's needed for people in order to escape this world. The key point of this text... Things are not what they seem or what most Christians think. Once again, a Gnostic has turned a Bible story on its head. Judas is not the betrayer of Christ, but rather the only one who truly understands him and why he's here. 
Judas handing Christ over to the authorities to be crucified is Judas doing precisely what Jesus wanted him to do, freeing him from the crude material body he's encumbered with so he can return to his true home, the divine realm. I see where this is going. That's right. Jesus is, as Mr. Ehrman can tell you, not the son of this universe's God, but rather the son of the true, original, unknowable God. Technically, he's the emanation from the Barbalo that was called Christ. But just as importantly, in Gnostic theology, some, but definitely not all, human beings share this divine spark with Christ. Again, we should reiterate here that just as with the canonical Gospels, there's no reason to think that the person named in the title had anything to do with writing the book itself. As near as scholars can tell, the Gospel of Judas probably dates back to the 2nd century AD, long after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as the other named apostles. And as we mentioned, there are numerous other Gospels and Testaments purporting to be written by various other biblical icons, including the Gospel of Thomas, one of the most important alternative texts and one that we touched upon in our QAnon episode, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Gospel of Philip, etc. None of these were written by the people in the titles. And by the way, as near as scholars can tell, neither were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But all of them were written by believers in one or another version of Christianity, and those authors used the names of the apostles and the other prominent followers of Christ to bolster their claims that their views were in fact the views that were held by those who were closest to Jesus in the first place. Obviously, this was because these authors wanted their views to become the orthodox view, though we know that in many cases things didn't turn out that way. So having covered that, we finally come to the part that connects these alternative Christianities with our hero, Phil. A religious seeker throughout his life, PKD really latched onto the Gnostic view, which started becoming far more prominent and popular as the Nag Hammadi texts were translated into various modern languages. As noted earlier, this was largely complete by the 1970s, which is coincidentally the same time that he experienced the whole Valus thing. In addition to accepting the idea that the true God was hidden from this evil world, and that the God of this universe was insane or a monster, PKD was very attracted to the notion that the path to salvation lay not in the sacrifice of Christ to atone for the sins of mankind, as mainstream Christianity would have it, but rather he accepted the Gnostic notion that the true way to be saved was to parse the hidden information in the sayings of Jesus, which could be used to ignite the divine spark inside of some humans and allow them to transcend the mundane, wicked world of matter. I see. Valus was a pink bolt of Jesus straight to the brain. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess you could put it that way, but it's not really very poetic when you say it like that. Ugh, fine, yeah. So this Gnostic concept of salvation through accurate understanding of hidden meanings really kicked PKD into high gear exegesis-wise. We already heard that he believed that the Valus event revealed his son's hidden and life-threatening hernia. And it also revealed that he was not actually... Or at least not simply... Philip K. Dick sci-fi author in the 20th century, but also a third-century Christian named Thomas, that he was literally both people simultaneously, and that the time stream that he and everybody else, including me and you and everyone listening to this episode, is experiencing literally up to this moment, was created by the Yaldaba Othish rulers of this world to keep the Empire standing and the Black Iron Prison Black Iron Prisoning. So he had received all of this information straight into his brain and he chewed over what all of it meant for the eight years until his death in the never-ending exegesis. We should probably note that while Dick was throughout his life obsessed with Gnostic Christian and Jewish as well as Hindu and other religious concepts, you could hardly characterize him as a believer in any of the mainstream versions of those faiths. In fact, he considered Christianity as it was practiced to be part of a heretical tradition that had been allowed to win out over the true Gnostic version of the faith by Yaldi, the Empire, the Black Iron Prison, and what have you, 
to keep people from receiving the true message of salvation that was sent by the Barbalo and Christ and wisdom from the true heaven. You get the idea. Or, to use his own words, I can say I am a Buddhist, or even the Buddha, that in Brahmanist terms, I have an avatar in me. I am an Orphic, a Neoplatonist, a Christian, a Hermetic. All these statements are true. And also, I have to some extent formulated my own system. I have seen God, but it was not God, it was more. And in addition, long before the Velas event, he was plagued by the notion that the world as presented to his senses wasn't fully real in the way most of us take for granted. All my life, I felt it is not that something truly real lies behind it. Thus, over my entire adult life, I have prepared myself to encounter an imminent God emerging from within this world. Viewed this way, it is evident that without realizing it, I have always been seeking God within or behind the walls and objects, the surfaces of this world. My whole conception of the world, reality, is radically different from that of other people. Which is, of course, a throwback to the idealistic philosophers we discussed last time. Finally, and this is really what makes the guy so fascinating, as much as he generally hewed to his semi-demi-gnostic explanation for reality and what had happened to him, he never quite accepted it as... gospel. Pardon me. For example, he also mulled over the possibility that maybe we humans created this whole black iron prison orthogonal time streams messiah in pink light situation for ourselves. That perhaps some future versions of humans decided to play a game where they would trap themselves in an artificial world just to see if they could work their way out. And the only clue they gave themselves was the veilless spirit messiah whatever it was to remind them of the unreality of the world they had created. So... If this is the case, we are just voluntarily imprisoned souls of some future human or perhaps totally alien beings who think puzzling through simulations of this kind, i.e. our human lives and all of reality as we understand it, is a fun way to pass the time. So we wiped our own memories and trapped ourselves in this artificial world with only Velas to help us figure out the situation, and we did all of this just to see who gets to take number one in the interdimensional reality escape rankings. Holy shit! This guy's taking Roy off the grid! This guy doesn't have a social security number for Roy! Apparently. So, the reality we all appear to experience is actually kind of a future-slash-extraterrestrial-slash-interdimensional escape room thingy? If so, I'm gonna fuck up their Yelp rating. Staff not helpful. No instructions provided. Left to fend for ourselves. Zero out of five. Would not recommend. Or in another way, as Dick puts it in the exegesis, If the final paradox of the maze is that the only way you can escape it is to voluntarily go back in, into it, then maybe we are here voluntarily. We came back in. We who are here, or at least some of us, were once in it before, in my case as Thomas, but we, or I, came back in, and am here now. Thus my voluntary return to the maze has already happened, and 2374 was true release and hence, for these reasons, came in the form of restored memory, the loss of forgetfulness. Then I did not solve the maze this time. I had already solved the maze by voluntarily coming back in as PKD, and I remembered in 274. Thus my salvation was assured not by what I did in this lifetime, but by this lifetime as such. Uh, Jesuit? Yeah, Dana? Are we pretending we understood what he said there? Yes, we talked about this. If we pretend to get it, the audience will think we're super smart. Oh, shit. Right. Um, give me a second. Oh, yes, Jesuit. 
that thing PKD said about reality was so obvious as to be nearly trivial. Yes, I'm glad we agree on how clear that explanation was. Carry on, Miss Unicorn. Anyway, he also entertained at certain points perhaps his most mundane, if admittedly still pretty out there, explanation for the Valus events. Maybe somehow, as a science fiction writer, he had been inadvertently drawn into the ongoing Cold War, and therefore, the pink light was actually the result of a Soviet telepathy experiment. Again, quoting the exegesis. It is equally probable that in March 1974, an actual concerted telepathic transmission effort was made in Leningrad, perhaps to test out and see if I was telepathically sensitive. This attempt, if indeed it took place, was more of a failure than a success, Inasmuch as I think what came as a result of this was my developing an instinctive antipathy toward the Soviets, under the perhaps correct impression that they'd made an effort to improve, i.e. coerce my ideas. In another version, he considered that the pink light came from the past, that it was providing him with retrieved knowledge, and that it had been triggered by an extraterrestrial signal that was from some sort of techno-gnostic messiah thing. Of course, he notes, This presumes a link between Earth and (coughs) heaven. I think there is. It's at this point that one of the editors of the exegesis gives voice to what you all must be considering right about now. It's impossible to ignore Dick's obvious and sometimes self-confessed psychopathology. In other words, that the guy often appears, well, crazy. It's tempting to collapse Dick's mystical realizations into this craziness, as if Valus were nothing more than a symptom of Dick's alleged schizophrenia, temporal lobe seizures, or whatever. But we must be more careful and more sophisticated here. Dick himself thought poignantly and deeply about these and related issues and came to a conclusion that many other thoughtful people, from William James and Henry Bergson to Aldous Huxley, have come to. Namely, that the brain may be a kind of filter, transmitter, or reducer of consciousness. That may sound familiar from our discussion of psychedelic drugs last time, that apparently what psychedelics do is not so much blow open the doors of perception, as Aldous Huxley and Jim Morrison would have you believe, but rather they deactivate various portions of our brains that are normally tasked with regulating our perceptions. When something, drugs, meditation, or a shattering mental pink light, switches off the sections of our brains that filter out reality, we can be overwhelmed by the experience. And then, again quoting this exegesis editor, Other forms of consciousness and reality, many of them cosmic in scope and nature, can and often do shine through. Trauma, we might say, can lead to transcendence. But, and this is a key point, the transcendent state cannot be reduced to or explained by the traumatic context. As for the material brain and its relationship to the irreducible nature of consciousness, the trauma does not produce transcendence. It lets it in. This could sound like hand-waving by someone who wants PKD's experience to mean something profound. But again, it's precisely this never-ending re-examination of the experience, an effort probably doomed from the outset, because as our editor noted, the experience is not reducible to a concrete explanation, that makes Dick's fiction and non-fiction so riveting. Also, if you're somehow thinking that Dick never considered that all of this might just be a spasm by a damaged mind, here's another bit of the exegesis. I have been partially psychotic for years, and in 374, I broke down totally. I was taken over by my own SF universe. Schizophrenia, with religious and paranoid coloring, of the ecstatic type, a sense of the cosmic, vast mystical forces, with me in the center, like a titanic psychedelic drug trip. And now I exhaust myself trying to explain 374. I was lithium toxic and had a schizophrenic breakdown. My mind monitors my missile anamnesis, 
as a clue to prior psychosis. I need romance, adventure in my life. The AI voice is a special kind of hallucination, one of wish fulfillment and need due to loneliness, emotional starvation and grief and ill use. It was a mercy. I was so unhappy and afraid, so filled with anticipatory dread. Well, damn it, I don't regret it. It made a barren, fearful life meaningful and bearable. This is one of the key passages to the whole exegesis. Dick is concretely differentiating himself from the hordes of delusionals convinced that they have received pure, unadulterated truth from the beyond, the aliens, the almighty, etc. Readers skeptical about Dick's sanity after reading the exegesis should pay careful attention to this passage, where he explores the possibility that the events of 2374 were a schizophrenic hallucination. In interrogating the veracity of his visions, Dick examines his own psychological makeup and analyzes what was going on in his life at the time. Simply put, crazy people do not question their own sanity like this, at least as a general rule. I find this one of the most moving passages of the entire exegesis, because in it, Dick places the cosmic scope of his vision in relation to the lack of love and excitement in his own life, and goes so far as to suggest that this loneliness may have given rise to delusions of grandeur. Such honesty is refreshing, and points to the sincerity that underlies Dick's belief in the authenticity of his experiences, as well as his desire to determine whether those experiences were generated internally as a manifestation of his psyche, or externally, by an encounter with the divine. So now, ideally, all of us understand where Dick was coming from when he contemplated his 2374 experience. Yes, in the sense that we're all as confused as he seemed to be. And also, it's hopefully obvious how engaged he was with some of the topics we covered in our previous episode. For example, he was deeply interested not just in religion, but philosophy. Remember how Plato believed in a world of pure forms? Also, for that matter, do you recall the simulation hypothesis beloved by Elon Musk, among others, which we also covered last time? Well, check out this quote from one of Dick's letters. If I were to say to you, the universe which we perceive is a hologram, you might think I had said something original until you realized that I had only updated Plato's metaphor of the images flashed on the walls of our cave, images which we take to be real. Platonic forms become the solid world from which our simulated reality is projected, but the principle is the same. Of course, Dick had no patience for the rigor of academic philosophy. He preferred to make huge intuitive leaps, not worrying overmuch about the little details. As an exegesis editor notes, though, the value of Dick as a philosopher is his rapid-fire ability to produce concepts and surprising associations. Continuing, If Dick had known more, it might have led to him producing less interesting chains of ideas. Moreover, Dick liberally borrowed concepts from the various Eastern religions and philosophies we talked about last time. He was attracted, for example, to Buddhism's idea of stripping away what we take to be the real world to expose that world's unreality. He took this to mean that we would see the pure information underpinning everything in the universe at its most fundamental level. There's also something of the Buddhist obliteration of the self in the idea of his other, perhaps truer existence as a Christian named Thomas in the 3rd century. At times you get the impression that he thinks of his existence as a 20th century sci-fi writer as something ephemeral, rather like the butterfly in the dream of Zhuangzi, the Taoist philosopher. Seriously, if you didn't listen to the previous episode, it's only going to get more confusing from here. We mentioned earlier that his obsessive writing about 2374 eventually not only colored all of his subsequent novels, but also caused him to view his previous output as having been influenced by that experience, even though those books were published before the event happened. Again. This is because he believed that all of our reality was an illusion that became us a trick by Yalda Baos, the evil false god of this universe, to trick people and keep them from accepting the message of Christ, 
who was sent by the real unknowable God, and our time stream, which he referred to as orthogonal time. That is, again, time at right angles to genuine time. Could be caused to move in a forward or reverse direction, and allowed causes in the future to have effects in the past. He really, genuinely believed this, and it gave him a sense of meaning not just for his later life, but for his entire bibliography. Had my 374 experience not occurred, I might suppose my 26-year writing theme to be vain, empty, and foolish. I now, for the first time, see my writing as half one and my 374 experience as half two of a total experience. What happened in 374 was that the real, the thrusting-through world which I intuited proved actually to be there. I never anticipated such a tremendous payoff, breakthrough, despite the fact that the corpus of my writing is a map, an analysis, and a guide. The 26 years of writing without 374 is a map of nothing, and 374 without the body of writing is conceptually inexplicable. And furthermore, my writing isn't messages smuggled into this spurious world to tell us our situation. No, we are in a prison, and my writing is messages smuggled out. We are trying through such as my writing to contact outside help. And 2374 was that outside help answering the messages regarding our condition found in my writing. So, let's take a look at some of these incredible novels, both pre- and post-74, and see what they can tell us about reality as it was understood by Philip K. Dick. <laughs> 